0: The damage from the superstorm stretched from Jamaica all the way to Canada, bringing destruction to 24 U.S. states. With its gale-force winds extending more than 1,100 miles, Hurricane Sandy killed 233 people and caused nearly $70 billion in damages across eight countries. After making landfall near Atlantic City on October 29, 2012, the storm pounded New Jersey and flooded New York City about 100 miles to the north. Near New York's Rockaway Peninsula, record waves were measured larger than 30 feet, combined with a nine-foot storm surge. This created extensive flooding that affected nearly all retailers on the peninsula. It also eroded 1.5 million cubic yards of sand, a volume larger than the Empire State Building. As officials began to assess this damage, they also made an important discovery. Areas of the peninsula with established dunes, such as Beach 56th Street, suffered substantially less damage and less sand migration into the neighborhoods than areas without them, such as Beach 94th Street. This fueled a push to include dunes and other natural and nature-based features in the region's beach reconstruction efforts. However, like all dune designs, efforts to understand the dunes' growth and erosion over a lifetime were limited by a critical knowledge gap. To best predict dune behavior, officials needed to know the full range of sand grain sizes on the adjacent beach and nearby beaches. But getting that information is labor-intensive and no nationwide database of sand grain size currently exists.
1: Knowing the size of local sand grains is important to many coastal management efforts, such as beach restoration, constructing natural and nature-based features for added protection, and even using sediment from dredging operations for new purposes. Yet while databases exist for such features as waves, tides, and beach topography, information about sand is lacking. To fill this void, Erdic has launched Sandsnap, a collaborative effort to engage citizen scientists in a project that will build that database and directly make our coastlines more resilient to the effects of storms and changing climates. Participants are asked to take a photo of the sand on their next beach trip with a U.S. coin placed in the photo as a point of reference. Those photos can then be uploaded to the SandSnap website, where a deep learning neural network will analyze the grain size to begin building the database. This information will allow researchers and coastal managers to model sand movement caused by tides and waves and allow them to predict and mitigate future coastline changes.
0: I'm Megan Holland, and with Chris Kiefer, this is The Power of Arctic. Our guest today is Dr. Brian McFall, Research Coastal Engineer at Arctic's Coastal and Hydraulics Laboratory and lead for the SandSnap program. We will talk with Brian about how Arctic is working with several partners on this initiative to provide new knowledge that will enable better management of our nation's beaches and about how you can play a valuable role to advance this effort.
1: Hey, Brian, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. I'm glad to be here. I want to start from a high level. Tell us what SandSnap is and why it matters. So SandSnap, it's a really exciting
2: project where we're trying to uh, fill a major knowledge gap. We have a good understanding of our beach topography from uh, airborne LIDAR and things of that nature. We also have a pretty good understanding of the wave forcing acting on our beaches. When you can pull wave information from wave buoys, you can get tidal information. You can also do wave hindcasts and understand, you know, predictive stochastic modeling of storm forces that may impact our our beaches. So we have a really good understanding of this is the shape of our beach. Here are the forces acting on it, but we really have this major knowledge gap of what is the beach actually made of. There's no nationwide beach-grain size database. So kind of the big picture idea is we're trying to fill this knowledge gap and create a nationwide beach-grain size database. And in order to create that large of a database, it would require, you know, a colossal effort that even the Corps of Engineers with our 35,000-plus employees, it would take a strong initiative to do. There's a lot of sand out there. There's a lot of sand. There's a lot of beaches out there. What we want to do is we, we're engaging citizen scientists. And this is a, a new initiative that lots of researchers around the world are turning to citizen scientists to crowdsource data. And the idea is a, a person would go to the beach, place a U.S. coin on the beach, snap a picture of it, upload it to our database. And then we would take that image and we process it using deep learning neural networks to determine what the actual grain size is, and it uh, exports the results back to the user. So it's, a, it's an exciting project that we're working with, and it's a different kind of project than I've worked on before, and
1: it's, it's pretty exciting. Like you said, this, this is all about citizen scientists, and, and it relies on them. You need people to go out to the beaches pretty quick, take a few seconds, and, and take a picture and, and put it up there. But why should people do this? You know, it still takes some effort. Why does this matter? What is the value to you, to science, to the country? Of someone taking a sand snap that makes it worth their effort.
2: That's a great point. The reason why it's really important for us to gather this database is because understanding the grain size, well, it it impacts a lot of things. It helps us understand how dunes themselves might grow or erode during storms because dunes are predominantly fed through aeolian transport, which means the wind blown transport. So understanding the full grain size that's on the beach will indicate how fast or how much material will actually be blown into your dunes. It's also important because Understanding the grain size will actually help you improve your hazard modeling uncertainty because we can have an idea probabilistically of what kind of storms may hit your beach, but if you don't understand the actual grain size, then obviously it takes less effort to move a real fine small sand as opposed to a very coarse cobble or or boulder. So if you think in that mentality, understanding the grain size for large sections of shoreline, it's a pretty relevant parameter that we don't actually have a database
1: for yet. You mentioned the aeolian transport is wind blown. the process that builds a dune. I mean, that helps you model what the dune is going to look like, how much sand is going to stick to the dune, how much sand is going to go past it, those sort of things. Exactly. And it also helps us understand the actual
2: quantity of sand that's going to be blown onto it. Because if the wind blows all the fine sand, well, then you have a coarsening that can occur where you have larger sand grains that are kind of sheltering the, the grains beneath it. And then during large events, the, the sheltering gets broken and more fine uh, material is able to be blown. So understanding the full gradation actually helps you model that significantly better. It also gives us the opportunity to, to kind of cross business lines in that, you know, right now I, I've only given ideas about, you know, flood risk management, but also for our navigation mission in the Corps of Engineers. We have an objective to try and beneficially use 70% of our uh, dredge sediment by 2030, which is a highly ambitious goal. And Lieutenant General Seminite has brought this up as a mission and a goal. Well, in order to increase the beneficial use opportunities, A lot of times if we're dredging a ship channel and we'd like to place it on a beach that's close by, if we don't have the same type of material coming out of that channel as what's on that beach, well then we're not allowed to place it there. Oftentimes we're told we need to place it somewhere else. And a lot of times that means taking it offshore and wasting it from the system, which is terrible because this is sand that would naturally, if that channel wasn't there, would actually go to that beach. So by actually measuring the grain size and doing it multiple times, multiple locations, doing it at different seasons and things like that, you'll actually capture a big, wide grain size range that actually occurs on that beach, as opposed to just going out and taking a few samples and saying, Mm -hmm. okay, this is what the grain size is here on the beach. And, you know, it's such a tragedy because if you have sand that doesn't quite meet the same uh, gradation and you end up taking it offshore and wasting it, you know, at some point they're going to need to nourish that beach, and you know, local uh, municipalities and things are spending millions of dollars. The Corps of Engineers were spending millions of dollars for our flood risk management projects, so it only makes good uh, sense for our tax dollars to be used efficiently to actually beneficially use as much as we possibly can.
0: To most people, sand is sand, and and Brian, I actually told you that unfortunately, sand is usually my least favorite part about going to the beach. So why does it matter that you restore a beach with sand that was the same size as the original?
2: So it's really exciting because. Anyone that's taken a coastal engineering course, beach nourishments are such a a common procedure. Any coastal engineering course, even if it's an introductory level course, one of the first things you do is you learn how to match grain sizes. Because Mm -hmm. if you're going to do a a beach nourishment project, oftentimes you end up looking for where can I find sediment? So you find different borrow areas at different locations, and each one's going to have different sand gradations. And it's interesting to to note and model how if you have a finer grain sand, you're going to have a a more gentle beach slope as opposed to coarser sand, which is going to have a steeper beach slope. So understanding that is actually really relevant. And it's one of the, the first parameters and things that you learn as a coastal engineer is to really quantify your beach grain size. And it's interesting that the beach grain size is not consistent across the beach. So you end up getting really fine material in the dunes and it starts to get a little bit coarser. And by the time you get to the Swash Zone, it's, it's extremely coarse in that area because it's such, so energetic.
1: The Swash Zone is the area basically where the surf comes in, right? Where, where the water meets the beach.
2: Exactly. So right where the waves are impacting the beach. Because that's, that's going to be the, the most energetic spot. So that tends to be the spot where you have the coarsest material. Mm -hmm. So whenever you're doing a beach nourishment, it's good to understand that I'm placing material of a certain grain size, but I also know that the cross-shore profile of that grain size is going to change and it is going to equilibrate. But it's also good to know how the beach is going to change depending on the grain size that you put there.
1: Just for people like us that aren't experts in coastal management, how bad would it be if you put sand that didn't match in the same beach, or you know, what would be the consequences?
2: There's a whole suite of consequences, and, and some of them involve environmental things, different benthic habitat. Benthic being uh, underwater creatures. Exactly. Underwater creatures or even sea turtles and things like that for their nesting, how that might influence them. Even the color, how that might in- change uh, gender bias based on the color of the sand and things of that nature. So the the sand grain is actually a really relevant parameter, and understanding what your beach is made of, it's uh, extremely important. It's also really important to understand your vulnerability of that beach and how storm resilient your beach Mm -hmm. might actually be, just because it's going to greatly influence how much erosion occurs and how the beach is going to respond during storms of that type.
1: How much difference are we talking about? I mean, how much variation can you find in, in a grain of sand? So
2: according to the Wentworth plot, uh, a sand grain starts with the smallest of being 0.063 microns, and that would go all the way up to 2 millimeters. So we're talking about several orders of magnitude yeah. and grain size difference. So I, I think I did the math one time and it was around 3,200% different, wow. depending on it, wow. whether you're the absolute finest versus the absolute coarsest. So it's, it's actually a fairly large grain range.
0: Is that noticeable to like, the human eye or do you have to look under a microscope?
2: oh, it's definitely noticeable by the human eye. In fact, we're doing some fun activities with children where we have like real finer sand and coarser sand, and we're, we're allowing them to use waves to, to kind of understand how the different grain sizes will influence the actual beach erosion that would occur.
1: We talked at the beginning of the show about Hurricane Sandy and the lessons that were learned out of Hurricane Sandy about the impact that dunes can have for coastal resilience led to more natural nature-based features being built. Talk more about how SandSnap helps specifically with dunes and, and how having a database like this can help make us more resilient to future hurricanes?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So if the grain size gradation range strongly influences how the dunes themselves are going to grow, well, obviously the larger dune you have, the more resilient and the more robust it will be during uh, storm events. Mm-hmm. So that right off the bat is, is a good indicator. And we've shown in some preliminary studies, how we can match the actual historical records of dune growth using aeolian transport modeling techniques and how it changes between just placing a single grain size versus inserting the actual full gradation range. And we've shown that we can get better results by doing that. So that, that's one major influencer of how the dunes can change and how that impacts
1: mm-hmm.
2: how it's better to actually have the full gradation to quantify the, and predict the dune growth.
0: Without that database, what is the current process when a beach manager needs to know sand grain size for a project?
2: So that's a great question. Right now, kind of the current strategy that most people do is you'd go out to the beach and collect a physical sample. And with that physical sample, there's a, a suite of different ways that you could potentially analyze it to get the grain size. But historically, the most common way is to actually use sieves. And you, you place the, the sediment sample in a sieve and you shake it. And generally, the, the cost to send somebody out to the field, take a physical sample, bring it back to the lab, sieve it, measure it, and determine your, your sand gradation. That, that's a cost of, you know, around $150 per sample. So when you think about it in terms of, you know, what does it cost for a citizen scientist to go out and snap a picture? Well, then once we start getting thousands of samples per year, it really starts to show, the, you know, the benefit-cost ratio of doing, engaging citizen scientists to do a large crowdsourcing effort to collect all these uh, sediment
1: samples for us. And besides the cost, it's also just a limited amount of information, right? Because if you're using the sieve, it's a very small sample, very small area. This is giving you an insight into a greater area.
2: 100%. So you're you're able to get more samples along
1: at larger stretches of
2: beach, and you're also able to get it at different times. So you're getting it in different seasons, so you're getting both temporal and spatial variations that you're able to quantify, which is really impactful. So that's an
1: important point, and we're going to get in a minute on how to take a sand snap, but... I don't know that I realized it until what you just said. If I'm looking at the database and I see, hey, there's already been a sand snap on this beach that I go to every year. He doesn't need me to take one. That's not correct, right? Even if you already have information on that area, you wanna keep getting it because there are changes.
2: Absolutely, and that's kind of one thing uh, we try and stress when we're we're doing public outreach and and engaging the different public events is that if you go to the exact same spot on the beach and you take a sample every month, you're going to get different values every month. And huh. because that grain size is constantly changing, your beach is a very dynamic system. So mm. we are, uh, th- there is a strong temporal variation component in your uh, grain size huh. for on a beach. Sure. And by using SandSnap, a lot of times you'll be able to collect more samples than you would as opposed to just going out and collecting three samples or five samples. Here you may have thousands of samples to filter and to really quantify how big is my sand
1: grain range. Sure. So that's kind of a good transition to talk about how you take a sand snap. Tell us a little bit about that process.
2: The process we say is, you know, as simple as one, two, three. One, you go out to the beach and you find a spot that's representative of the beach. You don't want to go to a spot where there's a lot of trash or debris or or other things. If there's sticks and things, obviously we want to know what the sand is. So you'd go to a spot that's representative of the beach. You wipe the surface off, just in case there is any of that armoring effects that I talked about regarding uh, Aeolian transport. So you wipe the surface off and create a nice smooth surface. You place a U.S. coin down. And then step two is you take a picture of it while focusing on the sand. Not on the not on the coin itself, but on the sand with the coin in the image. And you upload that to our website. So that's step three. Upload it to the website. You say where you are. It uses your phone's GPS to locate your location. You upload your image and you hit submit. And then within two minutes, it actually responds back to you with, here's the the grain size that we measured, here's the D50, and here's a a fun fact about a beach around the world where it has a similar grain size. So your beach might be similar to the beach where they filmed the movie Jaws, or you may be very similar to this interesting pink beach in Hawaii, or things of that Mm -hmm. nature. So. We kind of try and uh, engage them with a little bit of a fun fact, and we have a, a whole series of them, so you don't get the exact same fun fact every time. It, we try and make it, you know, somewhat interesting for people to uh, click a link, and you can learn
1: more about another interesting beach. You mentioned go to the website. We've got the link to the website in our show notes. But a lot of what you I guess often tell people the easiest way to find it is just if you Google SandSnap, it, it should come right up.
2: Exactly. If, if you Google SandSnap, we're usually the first thing that that you find, and it, and if it's not the first thing, the several top links are always linked to the correct website. Sure. So It's Google
1: an ArcGIS ARC site, so it's kind of the, the URL. You know you got the right one when it's got ArcGIS in the web address. Correct. Either that or the Coastal Inlet Research
2: Program. And in fact, we actually have a, a useful YouTube video that actually describes the step-by-step how to collect a, a sand snap from the beach. And it's a pretty exciting video just because the colleagues that we had to actually do the video were actually uh, James Madison University cheerleaders. So they they were pretty excited and they they went through the process on how to collect a sand snap and they high five each other and they do backflips. So it's a a pretty uh, funny video that that I think you would enjoy even if uh, you're not at the
1: beach. And how can somebody find that video?
2: Oh, so you can find that video. It's linked on our web application. Click on, you know, how to collect a sand snap and right on the top, there's instructions, but there's also a YouTube video, or you can go to YouTube and look for the Urtic channel.
1: What are, I mean, I imagine you get more and more of these, there are common mistakes people make. And so as someone goes out and wants to take one of these, you know, what advice would you have from what you've seen? What are some of the common mistakes and, and what should people do to try to avoid making some of those?
2: Yeah. So I appreciate that question because most of the mistakes we've made them ourselves. <laughs> hey, sure. Well, when we first started, every time we said, whenever you collect a physical sample, take five or six pictures. That way we can figure out what's the best resolution and, you know, so we can actually formulate better guidance. Every mistake I'm going to talk about, I've actually personally made and pretty much everyone on our team has made as well. But we have some real common mistakes of in order to actually get a good picture of the sand grains, you often get your phone a lot closer than you expect. Some people will take pictures from almost like their waist, pointing down at the picture, and that's that's just not close enough. You have to get within you know three to six inches of the ground itself, which is uncomfortably close. Yeah. So we get some Im- images that are just too far away. We don't have enough resolution because we have to try and pull out pixels of the grains themselves from the image. Mm-hmm. So that's a real common mistake. Another real common mistake is uh, you know you're out on the beach, it's sunny, there's lots of shadows. So either you want your whole image to be in a shadow, or you want it to uh, be without a shadow. That's a, another common mistake where they're, they're random shadows that kind of di- distort our coin detection algorithm. Mm-hmm. The third most common issue that we run into is, is a blurry image. So when you get your phone really close to the sand, you may be focusing on something and the whole image goes blurry. You snap that picture and you upload it. So we have uh, detection schemes to try and quantify or, or catch these common mistakes. The thing is right now we have those thresholds set very low. And we have the thresholds to reject a, an image or notify the user that there is an error set really low because I know if personally if I ever upload or try a new thing twice and it doesn't work I'm never going to use it again. Sure. And what we want to do on our side is even if it's a bad image there there may be parts of it that are still good so we could still potentially take every image that's coming in and then learn how to pre-process it maybe most of it's blurry but there's a subsection that's not maybe we could run sub-windows on it and say well we want to process the part of the image that's not blurry or
1: Mm-hmm, Make sure that mm-hmm. we're
2: omitting certain shadows and things of that nature. We're taking everything that's coming in and we're, we're kind of manually processing, okay, we realize this one's bad, that one's bad. And so we remove it from our database, but we kind of put it off to the side to where we can continue working with those images. So any image that kind of comes through, even if it doesn't stay on the database, it's not a wasted effort. No, no effort is wasted in saying Snap. We take care of that image and we actually use it to uh, improve our processing on the backside.
0: So the key to this effort is spreading the word, and you've done quite a bit of outreach. Can you talk a little bit about what you've done in that area?
2: Yeah, so one thing that makes this project very unique compared to my historical projects is, you know, we can have the greatest tool in the world, but if we don't have successful outreach and we don't have people participating, then the project's a complete failure. So for outreach, we've done a lot of fun activities. To start off, we printed out about 2,000 water bottle stickers. The goal for that is somebody could go out to the beach; they'll have their water bottle sticker. It makes it really easy for someone to point their phone at the QR code on the water bottle sticker and go to the SandSnap website and upload an image. Not particularly exclusively for outreach, but we've also been working with more than 30 uh, universities and state agencies to go out and collect physical samples and sna- SandSnaps for us. And part of the reason for that is because we uh, we're using a deep learning neural network, which requires training data to actually train the model to understand and to pre- better predict the grain size. Last summer we did a real fun event for the Girl Scouts where we had a lot of different little beach activities and this was really hosted by uh, James Madison University and we collaborated with the New York District and it was on Long Island and it was a real fun event where we got to teach a lot of Girl Scouts about different coastal processes and things like that. In addition to that we've also developed these library discovery bags and this was also done by uh, Shelley Whitmire of James Madison University. The idea is these library discovery bags will send two to a coastal library and kids can go there with their family, check out the bag, and then they go to the beach and they can do some really fun activities. So some of the fun activities are sieve some sand and make uh, sand castles of different grain sizes, put it in a graduated cylinder with the different grain sizes, and understand how that influences the uh, settling velocity. And one of the fun activities is the sand snap, of course. So Mm -hmm. actually this... Coming Friday, we'll be heading down to Gulf Shores, Alabama, and we're going to have about 150 children that are going to be there for us to talk about sand snap and get them excited about the beach and things like that. And it's kind of funny. We have 15 minutes to talk about sand snap and get the kids really pumped up and excited about beach sand. (laughs) And then uh, after us, we have a a unicyclist and a juggler that's going to come on that we have to try and, you know, compete with their level of energy. So we've come up with a pretty fun little presentation and we're going to make it pretty high energy and we're going to hopefully get the kids to run out and check out their library bags and give us a lot of sand snap samples. But in addition to that, we also have uh, some science fair projects that we're developing this summer. We're working with a school teacher to develop class lessons that any school teacher could potentially bring their class out. Lesson plans, huh? Lesson plans, exactly. The other big push for outreach that we're doing, we're working with the uh, California Shore and Beach Preservation Association. So we've been working with the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association pretty much the whole time. We've kind of worked with them and coordinated with them, and our initiatives kind of match what their goals are as well. But the California Shore and Beach Preservation Association, they're going to be hosting this large Snap the Sand event. And it, what their goal is to get what they're calling Ambass Sand They have about 24 folks that, that have volunteered to lead teams out to almost every major beach in California on, within one or two days of each other. And it'll be in this September, and they're all going to do Sand Snap, and they'll collect some physical samples so we can have more training data as well. But the idea is they want to do that twice a year. And after we do that in California and kind of learn what lessons we learned from having that big of an event, we plan to make it more nationwide and work through NOAA, through their estuaries program to actually engage citizen scientists around the whole country because they have National Estuaries Week where they engage citizen scientists in that same time frame. And we've kind of been given the, the verbal thumbs up that we could potentially piggyback on their initiative and actually get SandSnap uh, samples for the entire U.S. But it's pretty exciting to even yeah. just have the entire California coastline within a few days.
0: So you've talked about citizen scientists quite a bit, and you just talked about a lot of what you're doing and how it involves children. Do you think that you're contributing to a future generation of engineers and scientists?
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's really exciting to see the children get so excited about the projects and things. You know, like you said, it's hard to get excited about sand, but then when you start doing these little demonstrations and you're making waves and you're causing beach erosion and things like that, it gives the kids something to do and to get Mm -hmm. really excited about it. We try and make sure they feel like they're, you know, you're a true scientist. In fact, after our, our event this coming Friday, we plan to uh, give the children a, a little pin that says, sand snap scientists, and, you know, go take action, you know, to, <laughs> cool. to really, you know, yeah. give them, take charge and go collect some sediment samples. But that seems to be the, uh, a reoccurring theme as I've researched other citizen scientist projects that have actually been very successful. If you gear it towards the children, it's a fantastic opportunity for one of them to learn about coastal processes and things like that. But then also it allows you to crowdsource more data.
0: So I would have initially thought that it would be hard to get people, children even, especially maybe, excited about sand. But y'all are doing a great job of making the Seam Link something that is worth your time and energy.
2: Well, if you think about a sandbox, it's one of the most common children toys You're out right. there. Yeah, and enough. Enough. You're right. And, and like, what is special about the sandbox? Absolutely nothing. But you can get dirty and it's fun. And yeah. You know, parents will buy the sandbox for their children. So we're, we're kind of banking on the- Digger the
0: scale. That's
2: right. We're Take them to the beach. Get your parents to take you to the beach and you can do all these real fun activities. Yeah, you mentioned those library bags. Are you all in many libraries yet? so we're currently in two different libraries we piloted it at two different locations in New York and we took uh, one of the pairs back and we're deploying it down to Alabama the catch was we deployed it last time it was kind of during the winter months by the time we got all of our gear together it was kind of towards the end of mm-hmm. October and most people aren't going to the beach in you know October or the winter time up in New York so timing wasn't ideal for that so we didn't get as many samples as we'd hoped so By taking two of those back and deploying them down to Alabama and actually engaging 150 children all at once, we're hoping to get a whole lot more uh, engagement and and activities in that regard.
0: Can you tell us about the database and some of the SNAPs that you've already collected?
2: The database that we have right now, we have several hundred database SNAP samples that have been processed and are readily available on our database that anyone can go to our database. They can download all the imagery and they can download all of the uh, grain size gradation information. It's kind of fun, on our website, we actually have a a leaderboard. And on that leaderboard, it's ranked by state. So the number of samples per state to try and encourage a little bit of competitiveness between, you know, I'm a Texan. So obviously, I want to go to Texas. Every time I go to Texas, I'm going to Galveston or somewhere. and I'm going to snap some samples, and I'm going to try and get my state to bump up a bit. But also, you know, my wife is from the Mississippi Gulf Coast. So anytime we go down to visit her family, I'm always running out to the beach and snapping sand snaps Mm -hmm. down there as well to try and get Mississippi to rank higher. And then after, you know, California does the Snap the Sand event, well, obviously they're going to have, you know, hundreds if not thousands of uh, of samples along the California coast. So we have that initiative to to try and promote and encourage a little bit of competitiveness sure. and get some more samples there. But it's really exciting. We've also noticed that even though we're focused our efforts on the United States and because and although we you have to have a US coin to actually use SandSnap, mm-hmm. we have gotten quite a few uh samples from other locations. We've gotten some from uh Ecuador, and we've gotten some from Australia, mm. from Malta. So so there's I posted about SandSnap to some international uh, coastal research databases, um, Mm -hmm. online forums and things, so that people know SandSnap is out there. And it's interesting to see how many people actually have a U.S. coin and are actually willing to go around to their local beaches to actually collect some images for us.
1: Yeah, sure. That's interesting, too. Things you wouldn't expect. Is there value to you all in getting some of these international samples?
2: Uh, You know, sometimes they're, they're interesting materials or different colors, things like that. We've actually gotten quite a few samples from Hawaii, which they have some, some of the most beautiful beaches and some of the most diverse yeah. sediments that, that you can imagine on you know, uh, in a small area. So those are, those are quite fascinating as well. Sure. How did SandSnap come to be? Oh, so it's kind of a, a funny thing. I was working on the uh, International Natural and Nature-Based Feature Guidelines, NNBF Guidelines, and I was working on the uh, Beaches and Dune chapter, and we wanted to create a figure to document the grain size to beach slope.
1: Yeah, and I would say that that's a part of the Engineer with Nature initiative. That's a core of Engineers initiative, largely based on work that Ertic is doing, Dr. Todd Bridges. 100%. And,
2: and those guidelines were actually quite tricky to do because there were, uh, you know, more than 63 authors, which how do you make a, a guideline sound, you know, coherent when you have 63 different people writing it? So that was a, a colossal effort unto itself. But in our Beaches in the Dune chapter, we wanted to create a figure that showed the relationship between beach grain size and beach slope and the wave exposure. And other people had done this in the past, but nobody had put actual an equation to it that, yeah. that had a very large data set to it. And we, we wanted to do that. So I I posted a link to, it's called a coastal It's like a a web forum where you can post different uh, news announcements and things like that. And I asked for if anybody had any of this data that they could share. And I got a lot of information, pieced it all together and created this journal paper and we put it in the NNBF guidelines. So that worked out great. In addition to that, I got an email from Shelly Whitmire from James Madison University. And she said, well... I don't think this is going to work on your timeline, but I think we could get people to go to the beach and place a coin and take a picture with their phone. And right. I think we could process it. And I said, you know, I, I have some image processing background. So, as crazy and as bold of a, of a statement as this might be, it, it would be interesting to actually quantify if this is even doable. So, I, I went to the uh, Coastal Inlet Research Program, Program Manager, and I said, this is a high risk, high reward option, you know. I don't know anything about citizen science. I, I don't know anything about using different techniques and how we mm-hmm. could actually get people to upload images to a DoD server and things like that. So there, there are some major hurdles, but I think it could be really interesting for us to figure out if, if this is doable. And we kind of took that idea and we've worked with Shelly this whole time. And uh, we've actually gone from there until we've actually eventually evolved into a working web application that
1: anyone can use. Wow. And so obviously there, there are a lot of logistics in, in getting this going. And it sounds like from even talking in the past, maybe one of the most complex is you've talked about this deep learning neural network that can recognize grain size from a photo based on having U.S. coin in it and whatnot. I mean, talk about how complicated was it to get all this to work and tell us a little bit about that effort. So right off the bat, the first step that we
2: took towards this program was to let's look at all the different options that we could potentially get grain size from an image. And we looked at different things from using edge detection for each individual grain to pulling out lines of pixels and using like a wavelet analysis to determine we got to the point where we, we were getting about thirty-five percent error on average for our, our samples, which isn't particularly good. And we said, well, okay, we're gonna write the error that we found, we're gonna document what we've done. But before we do that, you know, one of these techniques was written by a gentleman named Dan Buscombe. and we said we should really reach out to Dan before he write anything that says we don't think his method's that great, in case there's some kind of tweak or something that he may know of that we should try to implement. So we reached out to him and he said, Oh, you know, I, I understand exactly what you are going through and and he gave us a couple little pointers and he said, but you know, at the end of the day, I'm developing this deep learning neural network. And I think that's going to be the silver bullet for this problem. And I would love to join your team and I would love to help you work on this Staff initiative. I'm fully on board for it. So we brought him on board and ever since that email and his first meeting with wow. us, he's, he's been fully on board with us and we've been developing the, the model and everything with him. And ultimately it's, it's his model based off a set of net model. Everything's available on GitHub and with that it's good promotion for him and his tools that he that he's developed but and also it obviously helps us because we have a very useful and the most robust technique out there to use yeah. for sand snap
1: just to explain a high level deep learning neural network what does that mean
2: so basically it's looking for patterns and it's training you take certain amount of information and you train it and then you apply it to a different set to understand how much error you're actually getting so what it's doing is we break our image up into really small sub-windows, and we apply the deep learning neural network across every little sub-window for us to actually understand, okay, in this window, we think the grain size is this, this window, we think this grain size is that, and then we take that, all that information, we pull the median value from there, and we, we show that this is the, the median grain size information that we pulled from all these different sub-windows. Although it's complex, we also wanted to make sure that it was fast nobody wants to wait 20 minutes for an answer you know none of us have time for that level of patience so we were really shooting for like a one minute answer and we kind of extended it to a two minute answer so you still get a result within two minutes of submitting an image sure
0: so we've talked about coastal restoration but another use is coastal resilience index can you talk a little bit about what that is and how this effort is helping with that
2: the Coastal Resilience Index is an index that it has been developed by a few different folks. And the idea is it would be nice to be able to look at a coastline and understand how resilient and how robust it may, may be and how vulnerable it may be. All the indices that have been developed thus far, they omit the grain size. And part of the reason for that is there's no nationwide beach grain size database. You can try and infer slightly. You can say that it's Implicitly included because it, you're using like beach slope, which is also dependent on your beach grain size. So, you know, a lot of people who've developed these indices, they'll say, oh, well, you know, it's implicitly in there, but it's not explicit because there's no nationwide beach grain size database. By us being able to develop this beach grain size database, it could be explicitly included in their indices. Mm-hmm. And then it would be that much
1: more beneficial for the quantification of storm resilience of our beaches. So, we talked at the very beginning about why someone should go out and do a SNAP. I mean, that right there is the reason. If, say, you live by the beach and you've got a beach home, going out and taking a snap once a month and uploading it is not only contributing to science, but is also directly helping your long term property value in a way. Absolutely. Or if, if you know a storm is coming,
2: go out and take a sand snap right then when you're walking your dog and then wait till the storm comes and then take another sand snap and see how the grain size changed. We've emphasized the children. An educational outreach, but even for adults, that the outreach is is nice, and it's kind of interesting to know. Oh, well, this is how my grain size changes after a storm, and this is how my grain size is during the winter versus the summer. There's a lot of interesting changes that that are useful to know. But in addition to that, even if you don't own a beach house, you know, not all of us own beach houses, but we still all have, you know, our favorite beach or our favorite, you know, childhood memory of going to the beach with your family and building sand castles and things like that. By going out and actually taking a sand snap, you're allowing more data to be collected, and the more data you collect the more information coastal managers have to make informed decisions.
1: And even for someone who isn't even a beach lover, but maybe happens to be near the coast, I mean, this is also just contributing to the sustainability of the planet in a lot of ways.
2: Absolutely,
0: yes. So what's unique about this effort?
1: This project's really unique in that we're trying
2: to engage citizen scientists, which is not something that the Corps of Engineers or ERDC in general has historically done a lot of. Right off the bat, that's one of the major hurdles and, and interesting components of our project. And it's really been interesting how because we're, we're trying to engage the public and citizen scientists, a lot of these new hires that we're getting, you know, they may just have a bachelor's degree or they may just be, a, you know, a summer intern. But a lot of times they're inside of, oh, you know, I have friends and this is how we do beach cleanups and this is how we do this, that and the other. Sometimes their insights are the most revolutionary towards our project. So it's been really exciting to bring just so many diverse backgrounds and be an opportunity for us to build and learn from so many different folks and to make this into a successful project.
1: And building off of that, when you talk about diverse backgrounds, how does this benefit from Ertic capabilities?
2: Well, Ertic, we're very special in that we have so many experts in so many different fields in one geographic location or, or in one facility. So when it came time to actually process a lot of these images and things like that and getting people that had experience with both coastal engineering and image processing and understanding the different field components of how to actually collect samples. We also have public affairs and different opportunities to expand, you know, for outreach opportunities. The nice thing about Ertic is that it gives us the opportunity to pull the information and knowledge and expertise from so many different mindsets, so many different diverse backgrounds, and to actually create SandSnap a really useful project and a useful tool that anyone can get behind and support.
0: Who are the partners that you're working with?
2: Oh, that's a great question because uh, I'm, I'm just kind of the talking head here for SandSnap. We actually have a phenomenal team that I'm working with. It all started with Shelley Whitmire from James Madison University, who originally had the idea. And she also helped us set up the original Survey123 site to start allowing us to collect images and things like that. And she's really spearheaded a lot of our outreach initiatives. She's developed the library bag, the discovery bags, as we call them. She's also really organized the Girl Scout event. So she's a main team player, and she's been with us from the very beginning. It was originally her idea. In addition to that, there's uh, Dan Buscombe who's developed uh, Sedanet, and he's really helped us with the deep learning neural network component of it. And then here at the Ertic side, David Young is kind of my co-PI, and we've really been charging together on developing the web application and things of that nature. We also have a, a fairly new hire named Shannon Stever, who, who's really bright, and she has a real artistic flair. So when it comes to making Sansnap flyers that people might actually stop and read, as opposed yeah. to my engineering, you know, jargon <laughs> and, and that are you know, way too many words. She makes the most beautiful flyers and the most beautiful engaging uh, advertising component. Uh, and then we also have Brooke Walker, who has a uh, master's degree in, in uh, library sciences. And so she's going to be taking over kind of long term our, our library discovery bags and working with librarians around the country to, oh, wow. to get these things moved around.
1: So what's next? Kind of where do you see this effort going in the future?
2: Well, I'm really excited to see how this goes in in the future. It's it's not a stagnant tool. It's something that we're constantly evolving. It's something that we're continuing to get physical samples mailed to us. So we're continuing to retrain our model. So the error we have today won't be the error we have tomorrow. We're constantly working on uh, developing new pre-processing techniques to make more of the images that we receive actually usable. So in the long term, I think it's a, it has a really bright future in that we're engaging through the California Shore and Beach Preservation Association, the big Snap the Sand event, and we're going to begin to get more around the country. I don't foresee this slowing down. I see uh, an exponential increase in the number of sand snap samples that we collect. So it's a really exciting time to learn about sand snap and to actually promote it.
1: That's awesome. I mean, I remember when you first told me about this, you know, maybe a little more than a year ago, and just to rely on citizen scientists, I mean, there, there's so much of an uphill battle. And so it's been awesome to see how much progress you all have already made. You mentioned the number of snaps and all the outreach efforts you have had and, and so forth. I mean, it, it's really grown in the last year and, and kind of building off that effort. It's exciting to see what's ahead. And now that it's summertime,
2: now's the, like peak right. time for us to get more sand snap samples. So I've noticed like in the last few weeks, uh, we've gotten you know, dozens coming in. It's been pretty exciting to see the efforts start to pay off and to see the fruits of your labor.
1: That's great. So I certainly encourage everyone listening to, um, again, go to our show notes or just Google Sandsnap, and that'll take you right where you need to be.
2: Absolutely. And I encourage everyone that's listening when you go to the beach to actually try and remember to take a sand snap because a lot of times people go to the beach and and they'll tell me afterwards, yeah, I went to the beach and I, you know, I appreciate you doing sand snap. I figure someone already got it from this beach because I, you know, I've been here before. And, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, go ahead and take it because even if it has, as Chris mentioned earlier, even if we have a sand snap from that beach, this may not be the exact same location. It definitely hasn't been the same time. So we would love to get as many sand snaps
1: as possible. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. Thanks so much for joining us and talking about it today. Yeah,
0: thanks for being here. I love that you're giving people an opportunity to help make a difference.
1: Absolutely. Those tiny grains of sand that cover our nation's coastlines are generally taken for granted by beachgoers. But coastal scientists need to quantify their physical properties to better understand how and why our coastlines change. By creating a nationwide database of sand grain size, SandSnap will enable better beach management techniques and coastal resilience strategies rooted in robust science. It will allow us to predict how storms will erode a beach, to understand how protective features like dunes will respond, and to more efficiently repurpose dredged material to replenish beaches. For SandSnap to succeed, it needs your help. So whether you love the beach or just want to contribute to our planet's sustainability, go to the SANSNAP website by Googling SANSNAP and upload your own snap.
0: The Power of Arctic podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Follow Arctic on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Arctic podcast in all major podcast players. Visit powerofarcticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofarcticpodcast at usace.army.mil. That's all we have time for today. We'll see you next time.